Welcome to Q&A, a podcast series of conversations with artists from the Kaddish Gallery at St. Ambrose University. We're gathered here today to celebrate Molly Wood's exhibition of photographs in the Morrissey Gallery. It's called Fatal Flora. And a few questions to start the conversation, but then um, hopefully anyone in the crowd is more than welcome to join in and ask, ask questions too. So first, thanks for coming and oh, taking part you. in this. Appreciate it. So. I think, you know, for students here learning about photography, but also having the opportunity to talk to a professional photographer, I thought a good question would be to start with the photographs that you're making here, and then also your, I guess, your day job, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. You're also a photographer for a company, is that correct? Um, no? Actually, I produce photo shoots, so um, okay. I'm not the... Not the direct photographer. Not the direct anymore. photographer. They're... Uh, I, I produce photo shoots for Better Homes and Gardens magazine at Meredith. Not the magazine, the products, uh-huh. product photography. So um, theirs is a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of uh, really technical Photoshop. I'm more aesthetic, uh, and they, I, I understand what they're doing, but not, I'm not as good at they, as they are at doing it. Um, so my my photography background has mainly been portraiture and uh, gallery photography, art photography. Mm. So, um, but yeah, during the day I'm kind of producing, uh, which is hiring people, getting products in, having sets built a certain way, um, you know, just getting all the pieces in place ready for them to shoot. I see. And then I'm also teaching history of photography. I'm interested in the older processes, so I teach history of photography at DMAC. Hmm. Cool. So let's step back and trace how this has happened, how this has developed. Okay. Um, you, uh, you, where, did you go to school for photography? I did. Um, actually, it goes back even further than that. My uh, introduction to photography was my grandfather. He, uh, his, my grandmother died right after my mother was born, and he realized he didn't have very many pictures of her, and uh, so once my mom was born, he took tons and tons of pictures and took tons of pictures of all my life. So he was always with a camera. Um, He lived out in rural Louisiana. And so when I was little, he would take me out with a little camera and uh, we would go for walks. And it seems like everything I was shooting was was plants and flowers. And Hmm. they had some interesting things out in rural Louisiana, huge gnarly oak trees and Hmm. things like that. So I kind of have always gravitated towards botanicals. In college, I was shooting 4x5 uh, cameras, so the big bellows cameras with the hood and uh, larger format negatives, um, doing film in the wet lab, and uh, did a lot of black and white botanicals. Um, and then as, as digital has changed, uh, back in the film days, if you, if you printed color, it, it faded easily, so it was kind of frustrating to try to get the color right and then have it fade in two years. Um, now you can uh, tweak the color so much in uh, on the computer that it's just so so freeing mm-hmm. and um, and the, the inkjet colors stay uh, true mm-hmm. for hundreds Supposedly of years. So far years we haven't tested right. them that long yet, but I <laughs> Rated hear for hundreds, hundreds of yeah. years, yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, so when you were in college, did you major in art and photography, or was that was, sort of, you just kept going with that? Or? I was a photojournalism major mm. and an art history minor, mm. and I kind of fell in love with the history of photography side, so I went on to grad school in 
art history and my, uh, my thesis was in the history of photography. Oh, wow. So um, after that, I, I just, I worked in art galleries, a uh, little stint at, a, at the Dallas Art Museum and... Um, SMU, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, kind of have, have hit on all different aspects of photography. Um, most of the artists I know don't make a living directly uh, doing artwork. Uh, I've, you know, been an assistant to a professional photographer, an office manager. I've worked in art galleries, um, you know, taught, and now this uh, this gig producing at Meredith. And at, at Meredith, that's recent history for you to to come to Des Moines, or uh, were eight, you eight years? Yeah. yeah. So and so you, you came from the south to Des Moines to work at this job? Um, no, I kind of took a big loop around. Uh, I was in Dallas um, when I was about this huge and pregnant with my daughter. Um, <laughs> my ex-husband and I had a chance to move to Vienna, mm. so uh, we moved to Vienna, and I had my daughter, and uh, still shot quite about quite a bit there. Um, and then moved to Canada, Vancouver, Canada. Mm. And then um, when we wanted to come back to the States, we had some family down here, and I just thought it was pretty and a um, good mm. place to raise a, yeah. a little girl. And, the, and then the Meredith job came later. The Meredith so. job, when you applied for that job, mm -hmm. were you able to you know, come into the interview and say, this is what I do as a photographer, and that led to the position, or was it more... Actually, um, I mean, it was not so glamorous. Mm -hmm. I, I had been out of the work world sure. for eight years, um, didn't have work permits in the other countries, right. and um, so I had just been doing freelance photography and portraits, and um, came into the job uh, as a flunky. Yeah, so yeah. my first day on the job was the first day they ever started shooting Better Homes and Gardens products in their studio and somebody just put a clipboard in my hands and said make sure everything on this clipboard gets done mm. and then it kind of grew from there but it, um, it oh. felt a lot like my high school yearbook job of just corralling photographers all day mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. trying to trying to <laughs> corral the chaos of creative people and business people, and I'm kind of the conduit to make sure that stuff gets done. So, mm. Um, mm. so yeah, I don't, I don't know that uh, I've ever had a direct line to somebody paying me to make art. Right. It's just something that I kind of can't not do. Sure, sure. So. And the the position that you have now doesn't, you know, I imagine if I could, I'm a painter myself. Uh -huh. I imagine if I had a job as a scene painter, probably the last thing I'd want to do before or after work is come home and paint. Yeah. Right? So you're in a position where you're not being creatively depleted professionally in I, that way. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I did have a job one time as a um, doing portraits at a portrait studio, so senior portraits all day long. <laughs> and the last thing I wanted to see was a camera. And then weddings on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So I, it really did kind of take the creativity uh, fun out of it. Um, but it's nice that I've still, I, um, I'm interacting with photographers a lot. I know what they're doing and I understand, hmm. um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the things that they're doing and I'm kind of learning a lot from them too. And, yeah. Um, you're in the mix with it, but then I'm in the go. mix with it, but it's not, uh, like you said, depleting the creative yeah. cool. side. So this is, this is more what I do. Um, it's, it's all natural light. So it kind of forces me as soon as I get home, uh, I've got a window of 
depending on what time of year, I've got a window of a few hours of light um, because I want that end of the day light like they used in the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And um, so it kind of forces me to go ahead and shoot when the light's good as opposed to setting up lights and, and trying to recreate that hmm. feeling. Hmm. So um, I'm shooting at night and on the weekends. Okay, yeah, well, let's talk about um, this work um, in that process. I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, you know, we all of us artists are like you, I think, you know, doing these in, um, interrelated professional and creative careers. Mm -hmm. And it um, seems like you're finding this nice balance of uh, technical skill and digital, you know, contemporary digital technology and this sense of history, a love for history, mm -hmm. art history, and also. Um, the social history, mm -hmm. and I think that's pretty in, pretty fascinating stuff to to think that, you know, I think we would all look at these photographs and and see a very technically established photographer, but we're also seeing something that's delving into the concept. And uh, I, if you could just you know summarize the concept um, that you're talking about with these botanicals, these historical botan botanicals. Um, I. Actually, it, 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 there were several things going on in my head at one time. Uh, um, in my personal life, I was getting divorced after 25 years, and uh, people kept throwing out the word toxic to me. You know, oh, toxic, toxic relationship. Toxic relationship. <laughs> and um, I started thinking about how funny it is that something that starts out really alluring at first can be kind of nurturing, and then at a different stage in it can can be toxic. And uh, my daughter and I were watching the Borgias. I don't know if any of you will watch that series, but Lucretia Borgia is kind of this notorious um, Renaissance woman who knew a lot about botanicals. And uh, they would say that before people go to dinner at her house, they would make sure their will was in place because she was <laughs> accused of poisoning a lot of people. So um, I always loved poppies. Um, that was kind of a my grandfather's name was pop up and my dad's mm. grandpa name was poppy and mm. um how poppies are uh like other botanicals that that they can be food um in in vienna they would have bread that was made just of poppy seeds mm. instead of flour mm. this black bread real seedy mm. um so poppies can be food uh, they can be medicine, uh, or they can be addictive and, and toxic, and it's just interesting to me how the the metaphor for how the plants can be nurturing or beautiful and seductive or toxic, um, kind of in the same way a, a relationship can. Yeah. Um, but also I, I was interested in how that affected women's history. Um, women who knew a lot about botanicals were considered to be witches because they, uh, in the early days, they wanted uh, peasant people to come to the church for healing. You were supposed to come to the church and pray, and, and that was a whole power structure of um, men kind of saying, well, this is God's punishment to you. Well, if you've got a peasant woman on the side who's giving you some medicine that can fix that, then she's threatening that system. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's a lot of why the witchcraft accusations came up. Mm. Um, there was a uh, sort of a treatise called the 
Malleus Maleficarum, I think I've got that right, um, how to spot witches, basically. And um, it was if, you know, witches, if they gave somebody a potion that did them harm, but it also could be a potion that did them good. Mm -hmm. So you could be accused of, witch, of being a witch just by subverting God's will, whether it's for good or bad. So, um, and then also just uh, threatening the medical profession to, uh, to be able to have do-it-yourself right. medicine. Uh, so um, I just found it interesting that that women in botanicals... No med medical professionals would be women at that point, right? Yeah, so. right. Um, but, I, but also just uh, kind of went down a rabbit hole of reading about um, you know, women that came to America uh, as, as European women, um, the first thing you've got to do is figure out what you can eat because the, the plants are almost totally different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you see seed pods on something and you think, okay, well maybe this is like a pea pod and I can boil it and feed it to my family and then they're having hallucinations. It's like, no, you can't do that one. <laughs> you know, which is one of the, uh, the white flower uh, is also called jimson weed. Mm -hmm. um, so those seed pods are hallucinatory. Mm. Um, and some of the witches, the, some of the people accused of witchcraft in America are women who took those seed pods, um, made them into ointments, and that's where it, the idea of witches flying came from, was because those hallucinations made them think that they were flying. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, just kind of all interrelates of, of women having to, having to know uh, about botanicals to feed their family, you know, and then kind of falling into finding out uh, what made people feel better at certain times, mm -hmm. and then falling into what you really wanted to avoid that was toxic. So yeah. it was kind of a, a woman's field yeah. Yeah. of um, passing down that knowledge to each other. Hmm. Are you, do you ever, uh, the, the plants you grow, do you turn them into ointments? I don't, I don't. Um, <laughs> I have people that are scared to, to come have tea with me, but um, <laughs> I have, um, I, you know, I, I read uh, contemporary, um, uh, Articles that say really don't do it. <laughs> I mean, because it can kill you. Yeah. So yeah, play um, with fire there's there, that. Yeah. yeah, it could kill you. So maybe not. <laughs> Have a glass of wine instead. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with these photographs, um, how do you balance this tradition and technology? The benefits, as you see them, of, of use. I, I'm, I'm assuming these are all now with digital photographs, yes. digital yeah. cameras. You're not um, using the four by five and scanning no, or anything. No. Okay. So using the digital camera, using the computer, mm -hmm. wanting to maintain the natural light, wanting mm -hmm. to maintain a sense of um, this historical bent to the yeah. photography. Yeah. yeah. How do you balance those, or how are you finding your way through those? Um, I want things to be able to be blown up as as large as I can. Um, these are twenty by twenty. Uh, I, a lot of times I'm doing 30 by 30, and you really do have to get into the fine-tuning of the camera to, to make sure those details are good. Um, mm -hmm. I love being able to tether my camera to the computer, mm -hmm. and, you know, so I'm, I'm, my camera's on the tripod, it's connected to the computer, I pop the image, in the, and the image is on the computer through Lightroom, and then I can, you know, really tap in there and see how, how detailed it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, you know, from one image to the next, I can kind of see the composition and think, okay, that leaf is covering that a little bit. You know, and, and if you look at the 
series. It's like just mm. these tiny little millimeter moves, but um, mm. being able to see it on the computer as a you know full screen yeah. image is so helpful. And then um, uh, and then being able to tweak the color uh, if, if things are off and. My background is basically a piece of black velvet because it, it absorbs the light. Um, it also absorbs my border collie's hair. So, so all <laughs> that retouching those, um, those white hairs out is so great. Um, <laughs> back in the day, you had to have a tiny little brush, you know, like with two hairs, and you would dig, dip it in ink and try to dot those out. And now you just like, you know, uh, Band-Aid over it. Yeah. Um, so that part of the technology is, is a treat. Uh, to be able to play with. Mm -hmm. the, the part that I'm doing that's more the old-fashioned way is um, I'm really doing most of the composition in the camera. I'm not, I'm not faking things. I'm not moving things. Um, so, the, so what you're seeing in the picture is what I'm seeing in the camera, mm -hmm. and then I'm using the natural light. Um, sometimes maybe a white card on, on one side, but trying to mm -hmm. just have filtered light from one window mm -hmm. uh, coming in um, to sort of mimic that look of uh, the Dutch still life painters. Sure. So there's a, a movie that came out a few years ago called Tim's Vermeer mm -hmm. and uh, somebody who really studied how Vermeer was using that light and using a camera obscura. How to, uh, An engineer, to, as I understand it, right? Yeah. Not a non-artist. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> kind of took the magic out of it, but just um, uh, realizing that a lot of those painters were using cameras, uh, a type of camera um, that is like a pinhole camera. They would, it would see the scene and, and, and show it on ground glass, and then they would kind of trace over that. Um, but that, that look of that mirror the window light mm -hmm. is what I'm after yeah the diffuse yeah, yeah. really soft yeah. evening or early morning light um, and then the plants just cultivating them uh, is kind of a process they're hard to find so some more than others some you know the poppies are in the in the spring florists will have them but uh, certain varieties of poppies that have the big seed heads are, are harder to find um, I kind of have built a relationship with a lot of growers in, in Des Moines, a lot of flower farmers, a lot of nurseries. Mm. If they have something weird come in, I, uh, they, they let me know. But um, it's interesting to watch those things go from, you know, like the, the green buds that open up into the flowers and then as the, as the petals fall off, then that pod's there and kind of the whole process of, of how those plants um, age is interesting mm. to me. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Tim's Vermeer is definitely a movie I'd recommend to anyone uh, interested in art and photography and the relationship between the two. I mm -hmm. just adore that whole notion. Yeah. I mean, he's an engineer. He's never painted in his entire life. He figures out this camera obscura thing, you know, uh, based on the... Who's the painter who wrote the other book about the camera obscura? The British painter. Oh, Hockney. Hockney. David yeah. Hockney writes this book first. Then he, mm -hmm. he reads that, and he's like, I'm going to do it. So yeah. he recreates Vermeer's studio, like literally piece by piece, builds a room, does the camera obscura, and then paints the painting. He paints Vermeer. I mean, they're very, 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 very good paintings. <laughs> do you Basically guys, by learning the, the, the technology, yeah. you know? Do you guys know what a camera obscura is? 
Um, so basically when light hits your eye, like I'm looking at, at, at you, when that light hits my pupil, it um, focuses it, but it also flips that image upside down and backwards on the back of my eye, and your brain knows to put it mm -hmm. right, which totally freaks me out, because I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, you know, anyway. Um, but so that phenomenon works with a camera. Um, you've got a black box and a pinhole in it, and that it works that way too. But you could even do it as far as having a huge room that's completely blocked off and cover your window and just have one little circle of light, and it will reflect what's outside onto the back wall. So basically, photography became people trying to figure out how to get that image that's on the back wall and have it permanent. Um, but a lot of artists have used mirrors to kind of um, reflect it back up to a glass that they can trace on. And so that's how they're using a, a yes, camera so obscura. Camera well, there's a, a slightly different a yeah. slightly different version of that, which is smaller, and the the um, drawing apparatus has an eyepiece, and but it's it's related to the same optical phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of the the genesis of all photography is that um, yeah. camera obscura, right? And really muddies the water. And David Hockney took a lot of heat for that back in the day for you know, suggesting that these Renaissance master painters were basically tracing photographic imagery, you know, and... Because, and, and one of the things he would say is that you can tell by the way the, the focus is softening mm -hmm. on the edges and, and certain things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Kind of took some of the romance out of it. I, I think the Renaissance painters liked it because they could get their perspective down, yeah. but um, it seems like they were doing a whole lot more than... I love I love it. I love I love the notion because it it does suggest that you know I mean every artist is different. For every Vermeer, there was another artist at the time who wasn't using one. Right. I'm sure, but mm -hmm. you know, for those aims, for those aims of creating these faithful reproductions of a natural setting, artists going to use any tool they can mm -hmm. to get there. You know, whether they're the Renaissance master or a contemporary artist, and that you know, I think that really does tie into what we're yeah. talking about here. This notion of the tradition, but also you're going to use the tools so you don't have to take 600 4 by 5 negatives and find the one that has the right composition. You're going to take a bunch of photos with the digital camera and right. find it. Has, have there been, um, you know, side investigations that you said, oh, that's too much technology. Like, did you try to Photoshop plants in ways, or is it you always sort of intuited this this is what I want from technology, this is what I want from traditional practice? Um, I think I'm kind of a purist, yeah. and and I am dragged kicking and screaming into the technology. I see, I see. So um, I've never had a problem of going too far into the technology yeah. because yeah. I kind of just use it as much as I have to to get what I'm wanting. Right. Um, one of the things I'm battling right now is when you get really up close uh, to something and then you pull back, there's... Uh, something called chromatic aberration, aberration thank you, um, where you've got that sort of bluish uh, edge to things, and mm. that drives me crazy. So um, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to, how to work around that because mm. it just looks digital, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so I'm, I'm trying to figure that one out. I see. So um, that may, may 
the more that drives you crazy, that may come to a, almost an existential crisis. Like, yeah. how am I going to get past this? I have to fix this, this? problem, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I suspect the answer is going to be buying a more expensive lens, and I don't really want that answer, so, so we'll see. Uh, okay, well, uh, what, what do people think? Anyone have any questions for Molly? Randy, you start it. Is the, the choice of this, the square space, is that to break away from the obvious modern proportions? I think so. I think so. It just felt right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it feels a little less photographic to me when it's in the, in the square space. I was originally, I had this idea to do them really small with really big, ornate black frames. And um, someone asked me, are you doing that because you like it or because you're timid? And it's like, oh, God, I am. You know, I'm wanting to, like, have it be this little thing because when you put it up on the wall, it feels more vulnerable, you know, when you're, like, just <laughs> huge like that. But, but when I look at a flower that's the size of my hand, I'm looking at the little center. Mm -hmm. But if I make the picture like that, not everybody looks at it that way. Right. So it's like I want people to look at the weird little hairs on the stems and you know, kind of achieve that by, by getting it big. But yeah, the um, the square just felt right and a little more painterly than photographic. Not to throw a monkey wrench into your theory there, but I kind of think it'd be even more brave to force them to come up close. <laughs> to do what? To make them come up close? Yeah. This is a ongoing Randy dialogue, the print it big, print it small uh -huh. idea. Yeah. He's, Although he's going bigger and bigger too, so. <laughs> well, I do like that idea of a little sort of gem-like thing that people have to interact with really closely. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that too. But um, right now, I'm kind of just feeling the nerve to go big for the first time. So. Well, that's interesting. I mean, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you can elaborate more on that if you want. Go for it. Okay. Uh, back to kind of the beginning. Of the interview. First, did you say you taught the history of uh, photography? Yes. Okay, so we just had to do some research on any aspect of the history of photography, but you said that you were interested in like the older processes mm -hmm. of the history of photography. Which older processes might that be? Um, I mean, daguerreotypes are amazing. Uh, the the there were two early processes. One was calotypes, one was daguerreotypes. The daguerreotypes were um, a chemically coated, uh, highly polished metal. So uh, the image of the person that's being shot, it's like that's a mirror, and their image is permanently affixed to that piece of metal. And I, that just seems kind of spiritual to me, that, that anybody that's carrying around that little daguerreotype that piece of metal was reflecting their loved one's reflection. So I think that's kind of beautiful. Mm. Um, and the, uh, the the British, that, that was the French version of an early uh, process. The, the English version was a calotype, um, which was a paper negative, much, much softer. But um, going back to the idea that a camera obscura or a camera lucida can, can uh, give you an easy copying tool. The whole reason he did it was because he went on his honeymoon and tried to draw landscapes of the Italian uh, countryside and realized that his hand could still not even trace what he wanted it to look like, so he wanted to make that image permanent. 
Um, he was going out with a Lucida probably mm -hmm. or an yeah. Obscura and, and he's like, no, it's and, not enough. Yeah, it's you know? not good enough. Um, I, I, and, and then other processes, I do love large format cameras and the, and the, the super fine detail that those negatives give you. Um, so I think those are fun too. Uh, what kind of camera do you use for the tech heads here? Um, I've used various uh, Canons. Um, I don't have the best and the brightest. Um, mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends who are photographers and I end up buying their or, or bartering for their second camera that's gotten old and mm -hmm. out of date. So, um, you know, I'm probably shooting uh, my my raw image is probably 20 meg and then mm. um, by the time I blow it up and do everything I've got to do to it it's it's can be up to 700 mm -hmm. so um, I definitely invest in a lot of hard drives yeah because <laughs> yeah. yeah. it really jams up your computer <laughs> but um, but yeah I'm not really using the the highest fanciest camera right. just whatever's at hand yeah so. yeah Uh, I'm always interested in artists' statements and how they do or don't relate to what I see in art. And a really well-written artist statement is always kind of a pleasure to behold because so many of them are fraught with authentic bullshit. Um, Amen. Something I haven't asked, but I've always been, well, I've been interested in it in recent years is. Um, Something that you, I thought, indexed early in your talk when your voice went up and you smiled and kind of <laughs> got a little bit giddy when you were talking about your camera being tethered to the computer and the excitement of the process. And I'm wondering if, in those exciting moments, if your original impulse to show poison relationship <laughs> symbolized by uh, the flowers, if that drifts away and what takes its place is this pure studio joy? Um, in a word, no. I, I, I felt like learning to tether the camera to the, the, um, to the computer was, was exciting and satisfying because it, it, it helped me get where I wanted to go, which was still back into this that that it was helping me look at the composition and be more informed about what that image was going to look like when I tried to blow it up and um, you know as opposed to looking at the little image on the back of the camera which was frustrating and, and then you go try to print it later and it wasn't quite sharp um, so the technology has always been a means to the end of, of getting the image that I want I, I don't enjoy the, the technical part as much. In a way, it made the sensation more media that you could mm -hmm. be kind of immersed in the screen there and really yeah. mediate that experience that you're having in real life, but in a much more satisfying mm -hmm. way, closer to the final photograph at right. least. Yeah. Just like you ground glass on a large format camera without all the sweat. Right. So why not? Yeah. And that's another thing I picked up on through working with professional photographers at Meredith. Um, you know, we'll set up a room and you'll watch them move, you know, just 
I call it death by millimeters, but I mean they just move one little thing and then suddenly the composition's much better. It's like if you if you stop and and really look at the picture um, and and make those little changes of oh this is a tangent, this is overlapping a little bit. If you really stop and be patient and look through those little moments, mm -hmm. it, it really helps the composition. Mm. So I'm sorry, you had a uh -huh. um. So you said earlier that you kind of started by photographing like wild flowers and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, have you ever photographed like actual, like, well, you said you worked in like a portrait mm -hmm. place, but have you ever photographed like people? And what do you like more about photographing like plants than people? Um, I, despite the fact that I'm talking to a group of people, I'm, I'm pretty shy and <laughs> introverted. And I like shooting people that I know. Um, because it's interesting to get the reaction of, of somebody you have an intimacy with, but I have a really hard time doing that, just stranger after stranger, you know, and people just walking in and you have to immediately get a rapport going. Um, I'm not that great at that, whereas plants, they don't, you don't know how to, you know, they're just, uh, they don't argue, they don't. <laughs> um, you have to talk to them though, right? I mean, well, a little, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a personality type, I think. Yeah. And and you definitely can can make more of a living uh, yeah. with portraiture, sure. you know. But um, yeah, this is just what I've been more comfortable with. Have, have you found, as you've gotten farther away from the uh, precipitating event of this series, your, your divorce, that the photographs start meaning things um, that they didn't? Yeah, know? yeah, I, I have. Um, it feels like my way of working through, I, I, for example, one of my older series, um, my father died the same year my daughter was born, and I started noticing as I was taking these pictures that it had to do with cycle of life and, and you know death and rebirth kind of, and, and it almost feels like on a subconscious level I'm working through issues as I'm as I'm taking them, and um, I have noticed that I have to keep reminding myself, oh that's not that's not poisonous. <laughs> you know, like I keep finding things, it's like, okay, I'm going to have a separate section of, of non-toxic flowers because I'm not as interested in the, the nastiness, you know. Um, and I'm starting to do more um, elaborate still lives, like with props and um, uh, more like the, the um, memento mori still lives of, you know, books and bird skulls and feathers and you know and the at the flowers too but um, but a lot of other symbolic elements to it so that's kind of the, the latest thing that I've veered off into and interesting uh, interested in the way that light goes through glass um, because of that side light of the, the window um, you know some of the, the bases that I've had the light is really cool how it's coming through the glass so playing with that a little more and a little less absorbed in the yeah yeah I was just curious as to which one of your photographs in those galleries you thought turned out the best and why. Huh. 
That's a good question. I'm kind of, uh, and it's the most different one, the, the one with the white flower that's close up and has the, the curl. Um, I have a hard time not wanting everything to be crisp and in focus, and it felt like I was kind of loosening up a little bit more when I was getting more abstract and softer focus and not worrying about it so much. So I kind of, I kind of enjoyed that moment of, of moving past my rigid, you know, everything must be in focus uh, thing. And then um, I kind of like the weird poppy pod with the, um, I don't even know what, I should know all my flower parts much better than mm -hmm. that, but the green pod with the little skirt of, ballerina skirt of um, stuff mm -hmm. around it. Um, it's like right when the petals fell off, I was left with that, and I just thought that was kind of fun to, to have just that split second of when the, the petals fell off. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find the, the <coughs> I, I like to watch things change. Yeah. Definitely. And, and so you start with something fresh and new, and you just let it sit there. And yes. You just watch it die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. And and um, especially those white flowers, they're, um, you know, they've got this little spiral bud, and they open up into this moonflower, and then when that falls off, it turns into this green spiky ball that just really does look poisonous. You know, I mean, it's really... Um, alien looking so and then that dries out and then when you open that up it's really weird inside too so yeah I like to and that's why when people say oh you grow these it's like eh, I'm not really a gardener I just grow them long enough to tear them apart <laughs> and watch them die so. <laughs> how do you know when the light is bright um it, it that's really intuitive I, I have to remind myself that I'm after that look. Sometimes I'll, I'll get a little too flat with the light. So um, there's just a moment when I look at it on the screen and it looks like a painting. And I'm like, that's that's what I've got. So when it when it looks like a painting and and, and reminds me of a of a Renaissance painting, then that's when I feel like it's a good good moment. Do you still photograph? Photograph like family and friends, or do you try to stay away from? Doing um, that and try to I would say my daughter's very well documented. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I end up with my with my camera phone a lot too, though. But um, yeah, yeah. And and I think I got that from my grandfather. You know, just wanting a record of everything and enjoying that. Yeah, I was a I was a yearbook nerd and had my camera with me all the time, and still have a bit of that. Yeah. How long on average does it take you to edit a picture? To edit a picture? Um, if I've done a good job, not too long. Um, usually 30 minutes tops. You know, I'll, I'll kind of have a session of shooting and I'll go through quickly and, and mark the ones that I think are best. And, you know, out of a session of shooting for an hour, I might have three that I feel like have something unusual about them. And then, uh, you know, just crop it and kind of do the do the auto tone and see what that thinks I should have. A lot of times I don't agree, but um, just to hit the auto tone, see what that does. Hit the auto color, see what that does. Um, I like playing with the levels mm -hmm. of the um, 
getting the black really rich, um, and then just going through really, really close up and just dotting out any any dust and dog hair. <laughs> but um, if I have to really fool with it, then it's it's not a good image. So that bad foundation in camera. Exactly. Not yeah. masking and transparencies and none of that stuff. No. Nope. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that people still knew it was, you know, it took some work. <laughs> some actual physical work. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I, I think that the, the, the closer you have to a final image in your camera, the, the better you are. The more you have to fake it and, and manipulate it. Um, I guess I'm still kind of old school. I feel like you're forcing it a little bit, but also... It's just never as good. Mm. I don't know. It, it, it ends up looking fake. Mm. How long did it take you to put the entire gallery together? Um, meaning take all these pictures or put it up? Or how do you mean? Just the entire like, process. Like when you decided to start taking the pictures to um, I started this series about 18 months ago. Um, and, I, and I had a show... I had a one-person show in um, Des Moines, probably six to eight months in, um, and these are kind of a continuation of that. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, but the series itself has been going for months, yeah. Oh, of the Fatal Flora total. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So about a year and a half. Cool. Can you tell us about the printing process? Um, there is a, uh, a former University of Iowa professor who lives, um, my daughter goes to University of Iowa, so it's a good excuse to, to go to the printer, um, but he lives out in the countryside near the university, and he just has this love for the latest and greatest Epson printer, and um, I go sit with him, and these are uh, Matt. Um, fine art papers, and then the the ink is um, kind of the latest that that keeps its archival. Uh, Epson pigment ink. Yes, pigment ink. That's yeah. it. Um, one thing that I battle with every time I show this work is that the matte paper scratches really easily. Like if I brush a piece of dust off with my finger, that smudge will be there, hmm. and that drives me nuts. But I, I love the the velvety texture of this paper, mm -hmm. so I'm kind of mm -hmm. stuck with it. I'm going to try some sprays to see if I can mm -hmm. get some protective mm -hmm. sprays, mm -hmm. but uh, I need to be less messy because the, <laughs> um, the, the printing things over and over gets frustrating. But. I, I have a comment but not a question. And it's, for me, teaching the photography class this is a perfect way to start the year because I spend the first two weeks with them telling them the importance of making um, detail and information in bright areas because when you print white white ink doesn't exist mm -hmm. paper. so when I came in and I saw this I thought this is perfect because now I'm not only verbalizing something to them but I can bring them up here and I can show them this is how it looks when it's done so this is your goal is to make sure you have this information in these bright areas and I, I'm, I'm assuming that's, that's all done very much. Yeah, very cool. consciously, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when you blast out the white, you just can't get it back. There's, yeah. there's nothing, just, nothing you can fake. Yeah. Completely put a, a wall up between you and the person looking at it. 
Yeah, yeah, it really, hmm. um, I noticed that on other people's photos. If the white has no detail, it just, it's, I don't know, it's like having your slip showing or something. It's like, oh, but I'm, you know, <laughs> it's just a sort of glaring error. Um, but yeah, having having detail in the whites is. But it's good to have another proponent in the world reminding <laughs> people that there's a history besides the last ten years, and this is how things look, and this is why we're still talking about them now. Yeah. And why it's still good. Yeah, and and I mean, if I have uh, in some of the new images, I have areas where I want the the velvet um, to sort of show some drape, and that's another tricky thing is to get. Uh, detail in the blacks too. These I'm kind of blasting out. I'm really burning them in. Mm -hmm. um, but getting detail in the blacks is important too. So it just it just makes it so much better. You want to talk a little about the exposure, uh, some of the technical side of exposing these uh, sh shots? One of the things is um, super slow, super super slow shutter speed. So definitely I'm with the tripod and. I have wooden floors, so even like the dogs walking by, <laughs> that little shake, or, or if the flower is really delicate and it shakes, um, that's another reason why I like to, to see it on the computer because any movement just blows it. But um, yeah, I'm probably doing three or four second exposures um, and shooting. Holding your breath. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Um, and then um, uh, with the cable release, so you're not pushing the camera as you're doing it but yeah super slow shutter speeds to get this subtle light because um, it's it's not not bright light that I'm using and I want a lot of detail so I'm trying to get the um, f-stop at the optimum which I started out thinking you know all the way up you know 22 you know or, or, or higher or you know f64 is the goal but they don't even do that on a SLR but um, uh, Sometimes it, it isn't the sharpest when you when you're at the the smallest f stop. So that's another thing that's fun on the camera is to be able to just make those tweaks and go. Okay, when I'm this close, you know, f eight really is the best place to stop. But um, but yeah, getting those high small f stops and long exposures uh, has its own set of problems. It's so frustrating to to blow it up and realize that you've got a little double, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, line at the, on the edges because it's it's been moved. Mm -hmm. I think it was in was it the pepper or the nautilus shell that Edward Lessons in the book that took him two weeks. Are you serious? A cloud moved over the sun. Not a day a truck went by. <laughs> it was you know several minutes. Long. Yeah. Mm. And he felt it. like the longer the exposure, the more he got the soul of the, the object. Yeah. Mm. So like three and four minute exposures. Mm. Yeah. Um, what about lenses? And when you're, um, you have this. This is a very consistent body of work. So you found a lens, or are you still switching lenses out, or you got you got your go-to lens on this? Um, I have a, a zoom lens, so I'm kind of mm -hmm. playing with it, but. Um, I definitely don't like when it gets too close up and too macro. It looks like um, too microscopic, looks like Scientific American, and that's kind of not the, the look I'm going for. And when you can't tell what it is when it goes too far, mm -hmm. then uh, so I don't like to get too, too close. Yeah. You had a question? Um, you mentioned Vermeer 
but uh, you also mentioned the Renaissance much more broadly. And, and I guess my mind kind of sticks to the Northern Renaissance in terms of. For sure. Are there any particular painters of that era that you continue to love and sort of get energy from? Um, it, it seems like a, a general Dutch still life. Uh, Northern Renaissance look. I don't know that there's really one. Um, oddly enough, there are a lot of women uh, flower painters in the in the Dutch still life painting, but um, uh, I don't think there really is just one. Yeah, it's it's more just um, looking through that general feel, and I do kind of look at reference materials for um, symbolic elements of um, things like butterflies because they don't live long were considered a, a reminder that um, that life is fleeting you know or or having one of the flowers in the vase that's kind of starting to, to die you know just to, to remind people that um, you know beauty is is vanity and it doesn't last forever so I kind of like those those it symbols seems like the northern painters probably had an encyclopedia of uh, symbolic concepts Seems like a lot of people knew how to read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did seem to be a common language. I, I honestly don't know if there is a codified <laughs> list of things that were used. That would be fun to find. But. Um, I just I was going to my head another question based on that idea, but I lost it. All right, well, we're nearing the end here. So does anyone else have a question for Molly? What would you recommend for someone like just starting out photography? Recommend in terms of what aspect? I mean, like, you don't really know a lot about photography yet. Mm -hmm. so how do you get started? Um, a couple things. Uh, shoot a lot. You know, don't be afraid to make mistakes. And, and that's the beauty of, of digital, too. You know, you just delete it. Nobody ever has to know. So try things, shoot a lot, keep notes of what you're doing so that you know what works and what doesn't. Um, as you get further along, if you have any interest in doing a specific branch of it, like portraiture or commercial photography, there's nothing better than assisting a, a professional. Um, the pay's decent, um, but you just learn so much by watching somebody who's done it for 20 years and, and knows all the ins and outs and um, I know at, at Meredith all the, all the photographers have assistants and they, they, they tend to be kind of a rotating group of people who are either at the end of college or just graduated and they all say that you know what they learn by those work experiences is, is so it, it leapfrogs you because you're, you're just seeing every different problem thrown at a professional who's, who's spent years figuring out those little problems. And so yeah, um, assisting a professional and then and then just when you're starting, don't don't be afraid to shoot a lot and make mistakes and um, you know, don't be timid and feel like you've got to get it right or it's or it's bad. You know, you can always go back and reshoot something or learn from that one and keep going. Is that what you had in mind, or yeah. <laughs> okay? And also, I think looking at other photographers' work is um, helps you figure out what kind of photographer you want to be. You know, learning the vocabulary that's come before you, I think, is is really helpful. 
That actually reminds me of my question now. Um, it was about Meredith and, and finding meaning in, in the photographic work there. Like, in, in terms of, you know, we've established how much personal energy goes into these, constructing these images and how they reflect your life and sense of poetry at work. What's, what's the dialogue like on setting up like a photo shoot for better homes and gardens? Is there a sense of uh, constructing a photo that's going to have certain meaning or manipulate the viewer in a certain way? Can we turn the microphone on? <laughs> <laughs> um, Positive honest, experiences, of course. Well, totally, honest, yeah. <laughs> honestly, trying to be creative in a, in a corporate uh, environment mm. is so frustrating because yeah. it's by committee and and we kind of refer to it as dumbing it down because it's like every time somebody walks by they think they're an art director and mm. they want to do this 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 and it's like they chip away at the, at the creative <laughs> you know yeah. so it's uh, you have to be really thick-skinned thick yeah, yeah. Um, and then just try to make it as, as good as you can within the confines of what they're trying to do because when you're trying to sell a product you know the, it, you're really you have a box around you and you, you can't sure. veer too far from it and every time we do we get slapped back down <laughs> because you know you want to you want to make it really editorial and and creative but it's it's commercial photography and you're selling a product so and you have staff photographers or you contract with photographers so it's maybe it's always changing or a no? little of both mm -hmm. um meredith has about half a dozen staff photographers and they are incredible they walk in and they have no idea what they're going to shoot at the beginning of every day it could be food uh, you know close-ups it could be a whole room they they just walk into to work and some editor comes up and says yeah we need a portrait for this you know article and they've got to get into that mode or mm -hmm. you know yeah we want a still life for the cover and they've got to get into that mode um if we can't get uh, we compete with the magazines to get photographers, so if we can't get a staffer, we, we hire freelancers too. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a few that, that just know our system and, and right. we work with. But um, yeah, the staffers just get um, dogpiled with just yeah. every request under the book, which is why it's great to assist them. Right. Because you're going to see every different kind of photography. So And time crunch and yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah. Okay. I, we have to end, but I, okay. def, you, I have to ask about food now. <laughs> Shooting food, how does that work? You get fake hamburgers and like whatever. No, no. well, some people do, but at Meredith, um, they they really feel strongly about shooting what it would really look like. Really? So they really do shoot what it looks like. They do take um, tweezers to put like little tiny parsley, you know, <laughs> in the, the right exact place. place. Um, and then the other thing is. Um, Ice cream is usually not ice cream. It's oh. usually mashed potatoes because you could do a scoop of it and it's not going to melt under the lights right. in two seconds. Right. Um, but yeah, they usually do uh, try to try to do it for real. I know a lot of a lot of them don't. Right. That's what I've always heard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the bad thing about working there is that when they're done shooting, it's all put out. <laughs> So, um, especially when they're shooting the, the Christmas cookie uh, <laughs> photo books in July, you know, all those little broken cookies that weren't quite perfect are sitting on the counter and they're very edible. So, <laughs> it's hard. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Molly Wood, for joining us for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. And this has been Q&A, recorded in the Kadich Gallery at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. The Kadich and Morrissey Galleries are located in the Galvin Fine Arts and Communications Center, 
at 2101 North Gaines Street between Locust and Lombard. All content of this podcast is the exclusive property of St. Ambrose University, copyright 2017, and may not be utilized without expressed written permission. <laughs>